Welcome to Saltivation. The Saltivation Show is a podcast series featuring the leading voices in salt, where we talk about the issues and strategies to help you make sense of state and local tax. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Saltivation Podcast. Today, we're wrapping up our Meet the Team series with a program focused on Judy Vorder and Saltivation's partner and practice leader. Joining me in the discussion is Alex Corsion, whom you all met in our initial Meet the Team chat. So, Alex, thanks for joining me today and helping me out. Nice to be here. And then, Judy, you're always with us, but thank you for letting us in and helping us get to know you a little more. So, hello. Hello. Otherwise, boss lady, right? Uh, yeah, boss lady. <laughs> I like that term. I don't know. My my creativity is a little, a little low these days. Um, boss lady is good. We can stick boss with lady. It. Yeah, what's wrong with that? <laughs> BL is better than BM. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, this is where we're going today. We can can wrap it up now. (laughs) All right. Well, diving in and it looks like we're already in. So Judy, throughout these episodes, you've shared a lot about your career. So we're going to go a little different and focus on what drives you and the elements that have built your passions. So just starting out, what was your first job? Besides babysitting, like a real job where I was being paid by someone other than a parent, uh, sure. McDonald's. Oh. I scooped ice cream, so we're we're, we're right in line. Did you? Yeah, yeah. McDonald's. Yeah. I mean, I was fast. I would work that window, and my girlfriend and I both worked there, and we would have like hundred dollar hours. And the manager was so excited for us because we were like wrapping those orders up, getting all that stuff. Da, 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 da. <laughs> serve it, serve it, serve it. <laughs> so, so you worked the drive-in? I did. I never cooked. And, and I still don't. I was like, and that's carried <laughs> over. I'm like, I can't manage like that many buns and that many hamburgers and like frying stuff all over the place. And then breakfast, like forget it. You got eggs, you got, you know, pancakes. I mean, sausage. It was like, there's a lot of stuff going on at breakfast. Like I did the dishes at the end of the night. <laughs> when did you start at McDonald's? Like how old were you? I'm sure I was 16. Yeah. I worked there and at a doctor's office. So it was kind of a weird little thing to make money. So I worked for one of the biggest orthopedic surgeons in San Diego where I grew up. And he did this woman's hands. Her name was Bree something. I can't remember now. But don't share her last name if you remember it, just in case. Okay, just, (laughs) I don't, you know, she may not even be around anymore, but she had these uh, club hands and feet and he did these things to her to open her hands up. He was a magic, he was a magician. He was amazing. So I was like the file clerk for the office. I would file all the files and the file, the x-rays and kept the appointments Ready. And, you know, I was just like a, you know, high schooler doing that. So I would do McDonald's and this orthopedic surgeon office. It was fun. Look at you. I wanted money. <laughs> <laughs> I was a hustler. So then what, what did you want to be when you were younger? An actress. Okay. Did that, how long did that carry you through until you decided to like shift until gears? Until my mother and what said did... she wouldn't pay for college if I studied acting pretty much. So I was going to get a business degree come hell or high water. That's what she wanted me to do. And I capitulated because she threatened me that she wouldn't pay for my insurance or my <laughs> my tuition. And I didn't know how to go alone, to be honest. So that was a, you know, a strong parenting moment on my mother's part. Well, and all in my mom's defense, my mother studied music. So she had was a valedictorian, got a full ride scholarship to college. And I akin that to her getting an MRS degree. I get a degree, get married. So my mother never really pursued her passion. She's a pianist, an organist. She's amazing. She could play those giant organs and, oh my gosh, choir director. She's just a magician. But she just never really had a career once she had a family. And she just encouraged me to have an, a career and pursue an education that would allow me to have a good job. So go to school, get a good job. 
Wasn't your grandmother similar too? Didn't my grandma- grandmother was one of the first women to get into Berkeley Medical School. Wow. My, my grandma was smart. And then she got pregnant and or married. We don't know. She's been very, well, she's passed now, but she was very circumspect about that. My mother added it up and said, I don't know. It doesn't seem like they were married before she got pregnant. But needless to say, she was married a very long time. My great grand, my grandfather died when my mom was 14. So it was a tragedy that they, that impacted their family. And my grandmother stayed home and did not finish college and had her two daughters and had no money and no insurance. My grandfather was a painter. So he was sort of a cash basis worker, good, good, good man, amazing man. So then my grandma went alone until my mother was in her 20s and actually married my dad. So she, my grandmother married again before my mother got married and had another family, another set of two kids. So my mother living through that life experience at a very difficult time in La Jolla, San Diego, which is a very affluent community and going to have like five dresses and no economic means and mom's got to go back to work and she's not very employable. It was a real life uh, awakening moment for her in a time when women didn't have as many options. And so my mother just really wanted me to be able to fend for myself, even though my mom stayed married to my father until he passed uh, 17 years ago early due to cancer. So, you know, those those are the shapes of, you know, what experiences happened in my family and my parents and my mother's and matriarchs of my family that really led me to be something different and seek something different for my professional career. Although I am married and my husband is works. So it's not like I couldn't choose to not work, but he doesn't provide for me in the lifestyle to which I would like to be accustomed. So I'm happy to <laughs> provide for myself as well. And I just have Judy, a- I cannot I cannot imagine you not working. That's no. kind of what he says. <laughs> that's yeah, what mean, he says. You would you would fill your day with some sort of volunteering activity. Or, yeah, or some, I think that's that you- part of it. And then I didn't have a lot of biological kids, to be honest. So I didn't have my first biological child till I was 41. So I had a long time to like go, what am I gonna do all this time? Right. I mean, kind of work, I could go on vacation, we don't have the means. And I, you know, you find intention in what you do and what you learn to love. And that was sort of my pivot. You know, I went to college and then I had a really good job where I had two weeks off at Christmas and New Year's. I worked for United Launch Alliance, their general dynamic space division. Then they became United Launch Alliance, which is what they are now. And so I had a really good job. Two weeks off every Christmas and New Year's. I didn't work more than hours a day. What is wrong with me that I didn't want to do that? But I just felt like everyone around me wasn't that motivated. And I just thought, okay, once I figure this out, like what's next? I just, I think my mind is always kind of looking for the next thing. I'm interested in participating. I want to be jazzed about stuff. And client service is a natural segue. And that's actually when I went to law school, which is what my mother discouraged me from doing. She said, do you see how many lawyers are in the yellow pages? Do not go to law school. (laughs) Well, I went anyway, because at that point I was an adult and I went when I was 25. So I was a non-traditional law student. I'd already worked for several years. I took what is called a reduction in force, completely changed my life, traveled for three months uh, to New Zealand, Australia, Fiji, and the Cook Islands, not in that order. Found out in Queenstown, New Zealand that I got into CU Law School and knew I was moving from San Diego, California to Boulder, Colorado. And I completely changed my life and moved to Colorado where I still live. So then kind of going back to like that drive and your mom wanting something like better for you or taking advantage of opportunities that she chose not to, how do you think Zoe interprets that? How do you think Zoe sees that? My daughter, my youngest daughter? Well, you'd have to ask her. (laughs) I'm not sure. She does say to me, mom, you've never met a stranger. 
Like whenever we go somewhere, she's like, of course you talked to everybody in the elevator. Of course you knew the net, the person in line in front of us. Like you're so social mom. Like you're just always talking to people and making new friends. So I know she sees that in me. I do think it's interesting with my youngest daughter, how creative she is. She is allowed to, what I've learned after raising two other children, which we adopted, my cousin passed away and we raised her kids who are now 35 and 33. So we took them when they were, uh, was eight and 10 when their mom died, who was my cousin, who didn't go to college. So I'm in college while she's getting married, having kids, very different life decision. She ended up being a waitress. So she didn't really have a, you know, not a terrible job, but just not the same educational opportunities I had as a person who went to college. And then when her, when she passed at 32, it was a pivotal point for me. And that's when my husband and I decided to raise her kids. And we basically adopted them and brought them into our home, moved them from California to here. And, um, and we journeyed through raising them. And so that was an interesting life experience. And I suppose just parenting them and then making them get to adulthood, they're 35 and 33, they made it, their parents themselves. And then having Zoe, I think what I felt I learned as a parent, especially of a child that is not my own, right? And, and, and getting them with, you know, a big loss. And, and there was other family dynamics that were very challenging for the children as they grew up. They went to 23 schools, there was drug addiction, there was a lot of instability in their lives before they moved in with us. And that, But they're their parents, they love their parents. So of course it's difficult. Um, and, you, and it's my cousin, I love my cousin. So, you know, there's just all those dynamics that go into family and parenting and life. And then losing someone so young, I was just a very pivotal thing for me. I had probably only experienced like one death and that was actually somebody on the roadside. And I was driving home from to my house after college and there was a girl who was laying in the street and she looked like she was sleeping, but nobody lays in the sleep, street, splayed out, you know, come to find out she had passed. So she had been hit by a car and died. And she's this young 20 something. So that was the only death I'd had in my life. My grandparents are still alive. I mean, I didn't lose my grandparents till much later. So anyway, so when we took Josh and Nicole and like lost my cousin suddenly at 32, it just really changes the trajectory of how you feel that life is short and you need to make it count, however that is for you. And so I just had a sense of urgency about that, about the meaning and purpose in my life and what I want it to mean and what I want it to be and who I want to be surrounded with. And so I think Zoe sees that. And as a parent, I would say one thing I learned, I did all these different parenting classes over the years raising my adopted children, you try to look at them and see their strengths, right? See them, right? Not what you think they should be, which is kind of what my mother did with me, unfortunately. I wanted to be an actress. I had this talent. I have this vibrancy. I have this chutzpah, whatever it is. I can project. And I was sort of stifled from doing that because my mother didn't see a life of ease, right? And so I went to college and then got a good job, but it wasn't enough, right? And then I went from that to going to grad school. And my life didn't pan out where I got married right away either. So for various reasons, I actually had a, a boyfriend that I love very much, but we just, just it just didn't work out. So, you know, 20 something, when all my girlfriends are getting married, I'm still single. I haven't found my partner and I'm going to go to law school. I'm going to find something for me. So that's what made me change my life, move here and uh, begin that trajectory. And then my cousin passed. I was 30 when I got married. So my cousin passed when I was 29. And it took a little while to kind of sort through getting the kids. And then we adopted the kids uh, the next year. So we were only married a year before we took these teenagers in. Basically, Nicole turned 13 a little bit after we took them in and built it, you know, tried to build a family. And I think we did were pretty successfully. But my point in all that, as I segue around everywhere, is you have to look at what 
children are and who they are and what their passions are when they're very young. And I learned that's really developed when you're seven. So if you look at a child, they're children, they're exploring the world, they're looking at things, but then you start to see what they take an extra initiative in. And they do that because they have time, right? Time. They don't, we don't have time. We don't have the luxury of time, right? We're trying to juggle laundry and bills and jobs and family and making dinner and all the responsibilities of life and keeping up a house. But children don't have that, you know, same constraint. And so when I watched Zoe with time and when she was very young, she had this real interest and aptitude in singing and music and writing and acting. And she's just that way. And now she's in the Denver School of the Arts for high school because apparently she can sing, <laughs> which I kind of honestly, I identify, even though I love music, we always have music on in our house, but I don't sing, right? And I don't really have aptitude, even though both my parents were musical. My mother being a choir director and being very involved in music, she played French horn. That's how she met my dad. They were in band. And my dad had a Glenn Miller style orchestra as a young man, and he wanted to be a band leader. And that he gave that up because that's not what you do as a man. And you should, he was a salesperson. I mean, he didn't fill his life purpose either, right? Got married, he had kids, and then he died after he just retired. It was really sad, and he was ill for a year, and it was heartbreaking to have him be ill. It was so sad to watch him slowly but surely pass. It was heartbreaking for me. I've never been so sad in my life um, to lose my father, who was such a fun, loving, interesting human, and my parents were so fun, and it's a loss that we still feel 17 years later. So I guess back to Zoe. So those are the attributes we saw in her, and we saw supported them. And, and like she did this musical theater camp every summer and she's done art things and things like that. So we would always point her in these directions that we thought she loved because, and then we would just see where they went, right? She didn't seem to have an interest in sports, but we would say, do you want to play basketball? Do you want to do this? And she did a little bit of basketball, but didn't really get into it. She's coming in here, shaking her head at me right now, actually. Uh, what are you talking about me for? Um, anyway, so I don't know. I just try to just, I want people to be their best selves. Certainly, I want that of my children. I want them to have a decent life. I want them to be happy. I want them to give back. I want them to be good parents, good providers. I want them to be good citizens. And I hope that I give them the tools and the framework and also maybe the feedback that they don't like to hear sometimes because I'm the parent. Well, that's interesting that all of those things that you had just shared of kind of how you approach your kids is also something that I see. And Alex, I don't, I don't, you might be knowing where I'm going with this, but that's kind of some of the things that I see you lead your team with is wanting us to do the things that we're passionate about, you know, supporting us outside of the office, within the office, within our career. Alex misses writing memos. He wants to write a memo. I go deep into a spreadsheet, spreadsheet. <laughs> you know, that I see you exactly what you just said is those are the exact words that you have shared with us in our team meetings as to how you want us to kind of progress in our career. Yeah. Do the things that, that you know, impassion us, that drive us, that like really fit with kind of where we are and our skill sets. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's super interesting because, you know, kind of hearing you talk about some of those early life experiences, one might conclude that that would create uh, um, a, a, a sort of a selfishness in, in an individual, but not with you at all. It's actually quite the opposite. It's it's this uh, immense sense of gener generosity with both your your family, your clearly your family, and and you know the way that uh, everyone at tax ops is as well and clients. Ah, thank you. I um 
I found that being unselfish didn't really work for me. And also a woman in business, we're just not allowed to ever get too arrogant to this. Like if you get to that top, like someone just takes you down. <laughs> it just doesn't matter. No matter what success you have, like I would have the numbers financially. I'd bring in tons more money than my peers. And I was still relegated to second fiddle. I didn't get promoted as fast as my male peers. And I'm more educated, more experienced, more wide breadth, have a bigger book of business, but I don't get to roll out that male white card that, that a lot of my, my husband quite honestly has as a, he's a lawyer as well. And he just walks in and they think he can succeed. He doesn't even have to prove it. He just gets it. Me, they look at me. I, first of all, I have purple hair now, but before I just color my hair blonde. So I just like, who are, who is she? Right. And if I sit silently, what do they think about me? Well, they don't probably think I'm going to be successful or capable. And quite honestly, even at the big four, we weren't allowed to tell our titles or have them on our cards. And I remember thinking, baloney. I wanted, I always tell people like, there's a difference in my educational background, which makes me exceptionally good at what I do because I have the yin and the yang of the law degree and the CPA. And I think that's why we're successful as a team because there's this thing about who we are in our nature that makes us really effective at this work. And looking at those qualities in our team is why we are together as a team. Because we each have these things that cross-pollinate, but there's this common passion around the work and an interest in it. I mean, I think you got to like what you're doing, for goodness sakes. Like, if you don't love it, if you're waiting tables and you're not awesome at it, which my cousin was, by the way, amazing waitress. I mean, she was phenomenal, loved by her guests, loved by the places she worked. And she did pretty well at it. You know, and so you can be good at anything you do, but you got to love it, right? Because it is still work of every day. So I've just really come to the conclusion as I've done different things on my career and worked different places about what it is I want. And I'm going to keep pushing for that until I die, I suppose, or retire, you know? And even in retirement, I'm like, why do I want to sit on the beach and fish all day? Like, I wouldn't feel meaningful. I Not to say there's not a value in that, but I like to be engaged. And especially in our area, there's so much politics and legislation and understanding our country and the, and the, the rule of law. And also just the fact that different businesses came up and we had to support that. I have very interesting leanings about tax now. I, I was more anti-tax in the beginning, but now I'm like, there is a role in government and society with the pandemic. Hello, could we have all agreed? No, but we should have done more to protect one another, to be informed. Are you going to be the CDC? No. Who's paying for those people to study stuff that means nothing and makes no money? The government, <laughs> because you don't support something in a capitalist society unless it's going to make money. So if you've got things that don't make money, that's what government does. So anyway, so I've just always kind of studied that mentality. That's why we have all these crazy tax laws to pay for a better society. And we have a freaking amazing society in America. Like I've been to 29 countries. Believe me, we got it pretty damn good here. And we don't even appreciate it because most Americans don't have passports. They have no idea. They've never even left our nation. And if they have, they've never immersed themselves in another culture other than visiting the sites. Have they talked to a visitor? Have they been there? They live there. Do they know what it's like to live there day in and day out? Like if I travel, I go for three weeks usually because it's the first week I'm decompressing. The second week I'm there. And by the third week, I'm like really checking it out. And I often go and stay with people who live there so I can live in their home and their day in, day out. See how they use a washing machine. I remember I studied abroad in law school. I went to Cambridge, which was so awesome. 
And the, I stayed with this person I had met in Australia because that's when I did my first big trip and found out that I got into law school in Queenstown, New Zealand, and I'm packpacking through this these different countries. And I go visit this one gentleman. Um, I think his name is Mike. I can't remember. It's been so many years now. And he has this itty-bitty little washing machine in his London condo. I'm like, who? How is this Washington machine this small? How's that working for you? (laughs) And where's the dryer? Like, they don't have dryers there. It's like racks. And they didn't have a shower. It was a cloth tub with a thing. I'm like, okay, how am I going to bathe in here? Like, that's their standard of living. And they had a high standard of living, by the way. And their refrigerator was this big, too. They don't have crap in their refrigerators like we do. They don't have freezers. They go to the market every day. They go to the pub. They have a very different culture than we have in America. They don't have supermarkets in Italy, just in Rome. It's not common in the the other areas. People own the lettuce vegetable shop, the cheese and meat shop. You cannot get all your groceries in one place in those small towns. It's just not as convenient, but it's a part of your life. And if you can adjust to that difference in life, how amazing is that? In America, we make everything so perfunctory, we don't even know our neighbors. You know, we're very isolated. We go in our home, we shut the door. I live in a house with a porch, and you betcha I sit out on my porch in the winter sometimes with a blanket and a car, you know, glass of wine and maybe a candle. <laughs> and in the summer, I sit out all the time and wave to my neighbors and say hello. I am adamant about having a porch. So, and that I did not grow up with in San Diego, though I did grow up on a cul-de-sac and I was best friends with all my neighbors. Oh my God, we played so many fun games in our cul-de-sac and all these fun games growing up as kids were very close. And so I grew up with community and I think that's really important. And you get that with tax as well. Well, I want to kind of, kind of pick on, not pick on something, but kind of that like selfless nature You are on the board of the Family Resource Center. Yes. And so that has kind of evolved into kind of like one of your passion projects and, you know, something that you care deeply about. Can you talk to us a little bit about how you got involved, the involvement? Because then I know also too, kind of tax ops, you know, sponsor some events and whatnot. So kind of talk talk to us about the Family Resource Center. One of my great gal pals, she's uh, ran this thing called Colorado Institute for Leadership Training. And I remember joking with her for years, why are you doing this? You make no money. What is the point of this? So finally, I signed up and did the class. So it was very inexpensive. It was a leadership training class over a six-month period of time. Did all kinds of amazing things. Learned about our amazing state. We learned about demography. We learned about water. We learned about our prison system. Really, I think the seeds of it were to teach people to become politicians. But I really did it just to see what Laura was doing, to be frank. And then I was like, wow, this is amazing. And as I was a participant in it, and I had been previously in professional organizations. I was in the telecom organization. I was in a joint venture startup organization. I did all kinds of business stuff, but I had not done anything philanthropic because like maybe the zoo, like I just hadn't found something that had meaning for me. I did junior achievement where we went in and taught kids lessons. I really loved that because that was sponsored by the big four. And so I was always actively involved that. I always did all kinds of things for the firm. I took on the firm picnic. I did the firm parties with the committees. So I was always very involved involved in those philanthropic and or social things within the construct of being kind of the big four extracurriculars. Yeah. I thought that was, yeah. a, that was so amazing that we got to be a part of that. So I was like, I want it to be awesome. I'm going to set up the picnic and I had a team and I make the picnic. But needless to say, I went to this program and I did it over a period of month. And I remember going to a class in Pueblo, Colorado, where we had a person come and talk to us about how kids, and if they are never read to by the time they are three, they never catch up. Never. That's a problem. 
And if parents are having children and can't read to them because they're juggling two, three jobs, trying to make ends meet, but still have their babies, they're not getting the substance they need. And my oldest daughter, I did everything I could to help her read. I would get her magazines. I didn't care. I just wanted her to read. She did not read. She did not read. She did not go to college. And I was just heartbroken that she didn't make that life choice for herself. And she sort of replicated her mom in terms of being an underpaid sort of servant person. She's a certified nursing assistant, but she sort of lost her way and had a child very young. And he's awesome, by the way, but just didn't do the things I had hoped that she could do, given she was surrounded by me, a very educated you know, businesswoman. I wanted to bring her up and give her that opportunity, believed in her strongly. But I think she felt she just couldn't do it. She didn't read she didn't absorb. My son, by contrast, is a lawyer now. He's just tits it out of the park. It's just who, how his brain is. And so I think there's a lot of trauma between the two kids growing up in the family, 23 schools before she was 10. That's tough. And she's the oldest, right? So there's just a lot of dynamics there that just didn't get her to be her best self. And so when I learned that, and Mark Kling is our executive director, and he was with me. We were really combative during the things. I was asking questions, and we just came, got very aligned during the six months of this program. And I remember thinking, I need to do something that helps kids, it helps families, and keeps them connected. And and I recognize now, my you know my children, Josh and Nicole, that our family stepping in and keeping them together was instrumental, I hope, in their ability to launch themselves into a life. And they're both doing great. They're great parents. They're great humans. They've done a great job with themselves. And so I just really believe in that. And that's what the FRCAs and the FRCs do across the state of Colorado in particular, helping families rise from poverty to success, giving them tools. Because just because you make a bad choice when you're young doesn't mean you can't change that with support. And we support people. We support people, food deficits, electricity, getting a GED, Zumba classes, health and wellness, nutrition. We do just so many. We do. Uh, we have uh, thrift stores at some of our centers. I mean, just anything we can do to help the communities. And of course, with COVID, oh my gosh, we serve so many people because there are a lot of people really on the edges that just couldn't sustain. They they're they're doing waitress jobs. They did. There were restaurants were closed. They couldn't make any money. They're not sitting there with a, a substantial savings. They don't have anything of substance. So the FRCA really helps with that. And I believe strongly. In the organization and our mission, and we help our the whole state of Colorado, which really resonates with me too. So it's, it's it impacts more than just the one metro area, and then the culmination of all our centers. And the FRCA is sort of an overseer of like data and management and what are all the things we can do to lobby together to benefit all the littles. Because some of our centers are smaller. They're smaller communities in the metro area, right? But that doesn't mean they're not needed to provide that essential service to bring people up, to bring the whole community up. So that's why I've been really involved in it. And I'm really passionate about the organization. And I love our executive director. He's a man who was a lawyer, did very well, chose to become a not-for-profit executive director. Who does that? He took a giant pay cut to do something altruistic towards the end of his career. And he's really made a huge difference in our organization. And I really respect him for that because it's a lot of women-centric. A lot of times women are in help to organizations, but he's a phenomenal leader. He listens to everybody. And so I, you know, I've been on the board ever since, partly because of him, partly because of the mission. And I will continue to be so because our mission really resonates to this state. And you know, I live here. So it's important to be connected. There's two sides, right? You've got personal and you've got work life. And that passion 
carries between the two of them. Because one thing that you would not be able to say about Judy Vordren is your lack of passion, right? <laughs> like you can hear that and like your conviction to how you speak for the people you care about, the things you care about, the things that you commit your time to. So then how does that, just how do you carry that passion into your work? And, and like that creates the vision for where you want the industry to go, the vision for where you want our firm and our team to go. Just how does that all interconnect? Well, you know, I've worked a lot of places now in my career, and I've really taken a little something of all of them. I actually did this study. You know, I don't know if people do different tests. Like I've done the Enneagram now. That's my newest thing because I have a coach, and that's her tool. I Before, I've done Myers-Briggs. I did this thing called Strength Finders with different professional leadership courses I've done over my career. And I remember learning that I should be a career counselor. That's one of the two, that's one of the careers I could have picked in. So obviously I, I have this, yeah, right. <laughs> I think I have this natural aptitude towards understanding and listening, even though I do talk a lot, but I do listen and hear and connect. And I really want to connect to people. That's my woo, winning others over. I just want to connect with everybody. I want to get inside everybody and I want everybody to be my best friend. And I'm a little killing myself with COVID because, you know, a pandemic doesn't produce as much connection, but I'm very people-centric. I mean, you asked me to go anywhere new and I'm like, yep, I'm happy to meet people, love to meet people. How can I, who can I meet? What can I learn about? And then I ask a lot of questions and I guess that's part of, as I have evolved in my career, because there's lots of different firms that do what we do, right? Or say they do, but I don't think they do it like we do it. And that's because I listen to the whole thing and I don't try to slice and dice the parts up. I think a lot of people really struggle with the complexity. I relish on the complexity. I physically feel so excited to listen to a client's problem and I can figure out how to help them. So somehow, some way, I'm really good at that. I can see the forest through the trees. So when I did the LSAT, I aced this one section called the logical game section. And my <laughs> brain, you know, everybody thinks differently. Like some people are really good at, um, what is that, Rubik's Cube? And some people go to cryptograms. Like my mom is a huge cryptogrammer. I don't really get that. I like word searches. But whatever that is about the law, it's logical as much as you don't like it. It really is. But as you apply it to business, it's logical, but business isn't logical. And yet it is, right? And so I think I just really enjoy the logistics of what are you trying to do here? Where are you trying to do it? How do you make money? And then how's the tax impact going to going to create, you know, be an issue for you? What are the things we need to think about? And so I'm just really interested in that. So I read about it all the time. I mean, I I read in my spare time all the time. I read lots of entrepreneurial things. I read lots of legal case things. I'm just interested in it. And I remember thinking years ago, like one thing I I would go to different things over the years to understand myself and leadership. And especially because I chose a very introverted field with a lot of people are very contribute and stay or it's good enough. And then here I'm a consultant, which means I'm project driven, which is more like a law firm because law firms don't do really recurring work. They do recurring clients, but they always have a different issue to solve. And CPA firms do tax returns and audits. And so, you know, you get a little bit of an ROI because you're doing something similar and you build on that base of knowledge and then you do the same thing just a little bit differently the next year. We never do the same thing the next year, right? We always have a new project we try to solve and then execute and then go on and solve another project. And so I think a lot of people don't like that, especially CPAs. So I think it's that yin and the yang. And then I try to figure out because unfortunately the CPA world has grown with audit 
That's a regulatory requirement. And then a natural byproduct of the audit practice is the tax practice. Oh, we'll do your federal taxes. We'll do your income taxes at the state level. Sales tax, what is that? I mean, even when I started, it was new 26 years ago, was really not well-serviced. There were so many companies in our nation that were non-compliant from a state and local perspective. And so it was sort of a beginning in the infancy of trying to understand like the tax laws and the tax rules. At PricewaterhouseCoopers, we had a taxability matrix that we maintained now we buy that matrix, right? We don't even look at it. I used to do, and you too, I think you've said to me, Meredith, you've done full state studies. I read every code and reg in this country to figure out how one of my software clients should tax themselves across the nation because they were selling this, maintenance, telephone support, newsletters, you know, blah, 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 this and that. And then it's like slice and dice it out. What's taxable? What integration services, training, configuration, that's different than installation. I mean, all that. And so you had to unpackage that because that's how the sales tax law works. And then you have to apply the tax to each line item that could be invoiced. And so that's when I realized, wow, this is really complicated and it's really time consuming. So nobody wants to do it. And then over time, you're like, okay, don't do that anymore because you don't need to do taxability analysis. They're slow. They're onerous. They take too damn long. Thank expensive. You. And they're expensive. Well, and, and, they take, the day when- and they can be bought now. You can create that by synergizing data, knowing the differences. Not that you have an exact answer usually. Sometimes you don't, especially with software companies. But you can get enough of a sense to say North Dakota is going to tax you. Like that's just going to be the answer. Or South Dakota is going to be chill. So. Well, and I feel like even more, because like my very first project in 2005, when I was an intern at KPMG, was to do a 50-state taxability study on downloaded yeah. movies. No one downloaded a movie in 2005. Right, right. But this also deliverable came in memo format because you yes. had to like akin a downloaded movie to downloaded software, which was That's still right. kind of new. And like the internet wasn't like super, you know, out there. Facebook wasn't a thing that was commonly available. Like, oh. So yeah, but so I wrote this like giant ass memo that like we would just pull a chart now and provide like the right. export in an and use that to apply it to the facts and then provide, oh, what do you, okay, cool. Here's my facts. Now what? Right. But now you also our value evolve. is the now what? That's correct. And I think what I learned being at the big four, where we had these big budgets and we have these big projects, you learn. And then I went to a regional firm where I had to turn a $50,000 nexus study into a $10,000 nexus study. And even that was a problem for taxpayers because they didn't think that 50 states at $10,000 was some kind of expensive thing when I'm like, hello, that's like 200 a state. What's wrong with you? But you, because they just, the value proposition and the thinking of it, well, now with Wayfair and all that, everything just gets, everything's just everywhere. So people are starting to get that, thank God. But we really struggled. And the, and the more, and the 46,000 CPA communities that are not the big four, they're just small practitioners that do a couple of tax returns. Maybe they do audit and tax. How could they possibly know state and local? How could they possibly know audit and tax? I have a huge issue with that where tax CPA communities splice and dice their work incorrectly, or they try to be generalists and they're really not. And, you know, as you're a lawyer, you really like, you learn, you cannot be a generalist. You cannot be an employment lawyer, a securities lawyer, and a tax lawyer, like very different areas of law, condemnation law. I mean, there's so many areas of tax law. And when you learn as a lawyer, like it's unethical to breach that. And you just don't, you know what you know, and you don't try to pretend to be something that you're not. But introverted accounting types maybe feel a little bit like, ah, I feel bad not saying I know. Plus, I want to make sure I get answers. And that's one thing over my years, being at the big four, we had this giant help desk, so to speak, of different offices. And then I went to the regional firm, it was just me. 
<laughs> I'm like, I don't know what to do in South Dakota. And I never cared because I was at the big four and we hardly did anything in South Dakota compared to Texas and California and so forth. Well, guess what? I learned South Dakota law. I learned North Dakota law because we were based there. And I learned about a lot of the smaller states because they're important to our clients. And so that just changed my trajectory of like how to deliver, how to help people, how to be more wide swath and, and, and not just look at things in isolation. So what would happen was I would get a notice from a partner or somebody working on a client. They say, hey, so-and-so state just notified my client that we have an issue. And I would say, okay, why? Then I'd ask questions. Well, how are you doing business? Why are you, Why do you have a notice from that state? Why do they even know you? Oh, you know, we do engineering all across the nation and we get licensed for engineering purposes. And then we go and we bid on the job and then we go and build a building or we design some infrastructure and we go outside and we do this. I'm like, well, that's Nexus and you should yeah. out there. And, and then you then- ask them, where are you registered in our home Nowhere. state? Yep. Right. And where are you filing? Nowhere. And that was so stressful for me because that was not the culture we had at the big four. The big four federal always knew to get salt involved, always knew to get international. It was a culture of collaboration. And that was not the case in some of these other firms, especially because they gobble up little firms that went on their own. They had the chutzpah to be entrepreneurial and they really didn't know what they didn't know. They didn't have the tools or the training. They didn't have a wide spec. You know, like if you think about Arthur Anderson, their whole thing was their what was it, Chicago? They had some kind of center where everybody went and got trained. And so I assume they all got their chips and they got indoctrinated, but there was some common training that was put out to the firm so that people knew certain things. I mean, some of these firms don't have any training. Like even at my former firm, we had a budget for training. People were allowed to do what they wanted. There was never a thing that said, you have to go get trained in this. You got to choose it. And so what do you, what are people going to choose? I mean, are they going to choose things that are going to be substantively better for them or not? And then in our field, bad training as you all know, very little in our space. I mean, that's why I got involved in the Institute for Professional Taxation because they were a national organization that cared about sales taxes, property taxes, not just income taxes. In fact, those were an afterthought added much later. So that was a nationwide organization of people who cared about transaction taxes. And so I've been very involved in them for almost my whole career because that is a network of people who get it. It's so interesting that you that you're you know what you're saying because as you're as you're talking, I, this distinct memory from a, a number of years ago from a, another firm popped into my head when I was doing complex uh, tiered partnership compliance in New York, and and one of my clients had a sales tax question, and you know I'm a senior associate at a at a very large firm, and the sales tax question comes up, and I didn't know who to call. Right. And you know I I'm almost certain our firm did sales tax somewhere by somebody. But I had no idea who to contact, and and I don't think I was was ever successful in reaching somebody. I, now you know this is many years ago. I'm sure it's different now, but uh, but that that really stuck with me. Well, I was at PW, and when I was there, and I joined the Salt team, they had a nationwide web of people. So we were housed in Denver, but we worked collaboratively, and we had national meetings, and we had local meetings based on certain jurisdictions. We were taught to be collaborative. That was the culture. Then when I went to Deloitte, I actually brought that to the firm because they wanted to piggyback on how successful PricewaterhouseCoopers had been. So I was able to be part of that initiative at Deloitte. So they hired me in to say, well, how is PW doing? Because they're kind of kicking our butt in the market. We want to be we want to be them. And I got involved nationally at Deloitte to say, we need to build this out. We need to create this network. We need to create this information. We need to create this like portal of information so people aren't not knowing where to go because there are people here who do it. So we created that at Deloitte too. So And then I was part of our national group. So I was local because I'm in Denver. And unfortunately, the bogey for partner then was like $3 million a year. Not one partner in Denver has a $3 million book of business, I'm sure. The market just doesn't 
allow for it. So you got to go national to get that experience or you got to go East Coast. And I didn't really want to relocate. So I went national and worked for our co-sourcing practice. So I traveled all around the country for five years, met with clients from Texas to New York to California to Oregon, Florida, you name it. I went everywhere. I got to see all kinds of business and I got to see how the firm worked at this higher level. And I was able to learn that and understand those businesses and their needs. And you know, the more you listen, the more you're like, okay, well, how can I help? Because you're always trying to figure out how do I help you efficiently, quickly, and get you the right answer without putting a lot of liability on the firm. And then I go to that regional firm and I'm like, whoa, whoa. I mean, they didn't even have an engagement letter that was for consulting. They'd never written a memo really to my, I mean, if anyone did, I never really saw many of them. So it was more of a compliance shop. So I had to educate them about Nexus and this and, you know, sort of build that platform out. And as you know, Alex, you were part of my team there. I mean, I had 14 people when I left. So in six years, I grew up from me, one, to 14 people, and even should have been bigger than that. And I was getting pushback because I think people were upset that I was telling them the law is not what they're, the law, they need to read the law, yeah. <laughs> which they want. <laughs> so then kind of on that token, kind of as, you know, kind of we, we wrap, and this is something that's incredible about you is that, you know, your ability to pick up, move, and start again and have that, you know, non-recurring business and whatnot. And really kind of, you're a business owner, right? Like you are the sole partner of, you know, tax op salt. So for, you know, people and maybe even women in particular starting their own business or like wanting to, what advice would you give them to someone who's done it and has done kind of it multiple times? Well, it's not easy. So you got to definitely have a little heart or you're not going to get, you got to know your why for sure. Like, why are you doing it? It's got to be mission driven, not just monetary or whatever. And then, you know, hire the right people. I mean, bottom line is get the right team and look for, and I was blessed to be able to build a practice several times with other people's money. So when I had to build it with my own, I knew what I wanted and I took that very seriously. And I hired people who I knew had a passion for the work and were really good at it. And that's you guys, you know, so I adopted you, Meredith, but you would still be here if we weren't doing good. So, you know, I really look for like heart, you know what I mean? And and skills and knowledge and, and a question. So I think that's it. And then of course, when you're running a business, you got to understand cash, you got to understand receivables, you know, when, especially in my uh, a consulting kind of business. So you win the work, you have no money. You you got to do the work. You still have no money. Then you finally get billed for the work. So you're always in arrears. So it takes time to build that momentum from a cash perspective before you you could be successful. You don't even have paper. the money when you build the work. Then you still have to wait 30 to 60 days. Exactly. So it's really... <laughs> different than like you sell a widget, right? I got the cash, I ran your credit card, you got, and then maybe I send your widget. I mean, a lot of times they take the money before they even give you the product and they'll refund it to you if they don't send it to you, sure. But they take their money, your money up front. We kind of finance our clients. So it's knowing that you're not going to get screwed. Sometimes you got to get a retainer. We don't always do that if we know a client, but we don't always, you know, we try to make sure we don't have receivables, right? We try to honor them and, and over over deliver, I believe. So I think that's really important. But you gotta over deliver because you want to over deliver. I don't think you over deliver because that's a concept, right? You gotta give a rip. 
Like you got to like what you do. So I think those things, that heart, and I always noticed that over my career, because I did a lot in software and high tech, and there was such a passion in those CEOs. And I remember going to these things, these entrepreneur awards, and I'd listen to them. And I think, what is that? And how can I turn that into myself and be that person for my business? Because I was an employee, right? I was even a partner at my former firm and a director before that, but I wasn't an owner, right? In the same way I am here, because they, I was part of a bigger whole of like 200 partners. So I only am like the small little cog in the wheel and I'm my own little cog because I'm a a separate service line, very distinct from my peers. And so you got to figure out how you let your light shine, right? And and go after what you believe in. But I think it also comes from just my personality and my my stick-to-itedness. I think I have grit. I certainly have resilience. But more important, I mean, I made, my husband and I made a lot of money more than we'd ever made a couple of years ago when I was a partner and he was a partner and, or he was an in-house counsel for a company and, and we were working all the time and we were not happy. And so it is not money that drives happiness for sure. And if you don't have your health and you are sick, like my dad, they had money and my dad died. So if you don't have that, there's no happiness. There's no life. There's no nothing. So you got to look around and think, what is it that makes me happy? And if you look within yourself, like me, I told you I get joy when I talk to a new client. I get giddy. I mean, I do. I just do. It's visceral. It's just happening to me. So it's manifesting. But it's not, I'm, not, I'm not lying about it. I'm real. It's for real for me. I'm super passionate. I'm always thinking about them. How do we help them? How should we think about this? I'm into it. I'm into it. That's And, and if they pay me to do it, great. <laughs> and so please pay me to do it and I'll kick ass for you. And I will do a great job and I will save you money. We always save people money, but people don't get it. So we have to continue to educate them. But I just think that's, if, if you have that in your heart and you follow your, your, your truth, you're never going to be unhappy. You may be frustrated with little bits and pieces. That certainly happens for me. And then that's just part of the process. Running a business is really hard because you got to sell the work, do the work, manage the work, build the work, do the accounting, do the networking, do the marketing. I mean, you're wearing a lot of hats. You're not just a tactical practitioner, even as a lawyer. And so I think service professionals have it the hardest. Because like, if you look at it like a, like even think about a hotel, they advertise, they build a really cool building, they clean it really nice, have a nice front desk team. The rest of it hopefully sells itself, right? We sell us. Our skills, our talent, our knowledge, our collaborativeness, our deep depth of expertise, our different skill sets, and that whole, it makes us so powerful. Like, Mm -hmm. we are the best SALT team in the world. I know it because I look at my peers and I'm like, you're only sales tax or you're only this or you're this state. You're not thinking holistically. You're thinking this way. You got to think like this, like that question. You have an issue in South Dakota. Why? When you're in North Dakota, why are we worried about South Dakota? What about Texas? What about Wyoming? What about, the, oh, you're selling there too. It's just that South Dakota got there first. When's the rest of the state going to come? So I think anybody who works nationally has to deal with taxes. I'm sorry. Like you want to make money off citizens of the United States, you're going to have to deal with your tax consequences. And it doesn't just be, you get to ship it and send an e-byte and send an e-invoice and it doesn't have a consequence. And I think there is some kind of disconnect with that. And I, and unfortunately we do have a very complicated set of laws, but so does everybody. Employee law is complicated. The internet is complicated. I mean, Getting a mortgage is complicated. Get over it. Just figure it out. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and on that, we're going to go kind of into the way that we like to wrap kind of our our episodes when we, you know, maybe leave enough time. (laughs) But so here's our little, here's our little rapid fires. Let's see if we can learn some more about, you know, boss lady, right? 
All right. Who dead or alive would you like to have lunch with? Oh my God. Was I supposed to be prepared for that question? I don't know. Probably Madonna or Cher. I think they're kind of amazing pioneering women and they really turned it upside down. So probably them, even though they're entertainment, I still think they've resonated and stood the test of time in their 60s and 70s, maybe. All right. Favorite movie? Oh, golly. Favorite movie? Uh, I really like Gardens of the Galaxy. I've seen it multiple times, so that may be one of my favorites. Okay. Favorite date night? Oh, play and dinner. Definitely. No hand, hands down, it. hands down. Yeah. We subscribe to Dinner Center Theater Company. 20 something years we've subscribed. We love the theater. It's our thing. I'm always enriched by it. I never know what they're playing. Ugh, it's transformative. Love it. What do you listen to in the car? Uh, NPR, usually. Or Zoe's show tunes when she's into Hamilton? Yes, pretty or much. She always insists on something other than NPR. <laughs> yeah, she doesn't want to learn about current events. She wants to listen and sing. <laughs> What are you reading right now? Well, my next book, which is right here, which I haven't read yet, is called Making Toast by Roger Rosenblatt. And I think it's a story about taking a step back with your family and just paying attention to the little things. So I'm looking forward to reading it because I is think that it's your book good club to remember book? that. Yeah, it's the one I picked because I'm in charge this time. <laughs> and we just read Machines Like Us, which was really good. Um, I love reading. so But I don't always read as, as intentionally in books, except because I'm in book clubs because... I get really sucked into books. And so I can't, I can't stop reading them. Then I stay up till three in the morning and I'm exhausted. I'm obsessive about if I love a book, can't put it down. Better a book than, you know, my uh, episodes of whatever show it is. Oh, that too. I mean, oh my God. We're, <laughs> I guess, we're watching WandaVision now. We just, I was going to yeah. say that, that'll be That's my, you know, one. my ad Super hoc loving that. And question. it's only like 20 minutes. Like it's super yeah. fast. We're like, oh, play, oh, play, oh, play. Yeah. Yeah. Super. It's bad for us. <laughs> Now, I know the first part of this, but I don't know how you've evolved your taste. Coffee or tea? Oh, coffee, for sure. Espresso, um, actually, a mocha. How do you take it? So, what's your Starbucks order now? What's your right Starbucks now? order? What's your Starbucks order? <laughs> well, I went order? from Grande to Vente. So, I'm Venti to one pump mocha, half calf, non-fat, no whip. If I do calf, yeah, half calf, non-fat, no whip. Almond milk, maybe coconut, half and half. So, then my Starbucks, which used to be a four bucks, is a seven buck. Because <laughs> they charge me extra for like the different kind of milk, which is kind of baloney because I'm not having the regular milk. So why should you charge me extra for the almond and coconut? But whatevs, I just buy it. Because anyway. it takes a lot of work to milk an almond. <laughs> <laughs> so what are three words or phrases that you think Zoe would use to describe you? Oh, oh golly, Zoe. Can I ask her? Sure. <laughs> Zoe, Zoe, what three words? Zoe, what three words you... What three words would you use to describe me? Three words. Crazy. Random words, though. Crazy. Crazy. <laughs> really fun. That's not a word. That's a set saying. Extraordinary. Oh. <laughs> that's a good one. <laughs> that's a wow, good one. Wow. That was... No, not... Okay, wait. Crazy, definitely. Extraordinary and... Like authentic. Authentic. She says, and I'm taking fun away and I'm going authentic. Crazy, extraordinary, authentic. Very nice. I like that word. I think we would definitely agree with those as your team, as, you know, half of your team. Thank you for your time. Thank you for being our leader. And, you know, we've learned a lot, you know, and and it's really good. You know, sometimes at the end of the day, we get stuck into getting the work done and whatnot. And so it's really good to have that refresh and step back and to really hear because it is inspiring 
the reason we do what we do and what drives you and that trickles down to the team. I don't know, you know, I don't want to speak for Alex, but thank you for, you know, kind of all that you do for us. This has been another episode of the Saltivation Podcast with guest host Alex Corjan. You can, you know, listen to his episode again because it's a fun one too. Thank you for being here. And until next time. This podcast is for educational purposes only and is not intended, nor should it be relied upon as legal, tax, accounting, or investment advice. You should consult with a competent professional to discuss specifics of your situation and the applicability of the information presented.